Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsh, and this is episode 83 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope you're having a great week out there. Happy Thursday, and our Halloween episode, also coming out on my birthday. It's my birthday the day this comes out. Uh, It is uh, the last episode of our spooky season. Uh, Not necessarily the best movie to have running the week of Halloween, but it just kind of timed out that way. Also, just coincidentally, coming out the same week that the first real episode of my other podcast, Never Say Die, came out. And uh, the reason that's convenient is because my guest this week is my co-host on that show, Drew Meyer. Uh, Drew returns to the show after having previously talked about The Thing and The Blob, and we talk a little bit about his love for 80s horror remakes, uh, as well as the 80s genre as a whole, and then get into The Fly, a movie I had never seen, and I think Drew'd been chomping at the bit to get me to watch this one, and uh, what better way to get me to watch it than to come on my show and talk about it. So we we have a great conversation about a really interesting movie, not the movie that I thought it was, but still, hope you enjoy our conversation about The Fly. I've I've been opening the last couple because they've been repeat guests and you've been a repeat guest. So I've been, instead of just the kind of the the, the banter about how you're doing, I mean, you and I talk all the time. I know how you're doing. Right, sure. My my question for you is, this is your third time. You did the thing. Uh You did the blob. Uh You did the fly. Uh And and we'll ignore your fixation on movies that begin with the. But what is it? Because this kind of ties into our side project that we're working on as well. What is it about movies from this time period Not only in popular culture, because I think popular culture has a fixation with this time period, but but you have a fixation with this time period. So what is it? What's causing that? Oh, come on, Rafe. You know this one. Everyone should know this one. Uh, The movies that you watch between the ages of uh, 8 and 12 are the best movies in the world. That's that's just the way it is. That's just that's (laughs) it's like, hey, you know, that music that you listened to when you first discovered music, that's always going to be your favorite. Movies from the mid to mid to late eighties, early nineties are ones that are always gonna kind of because that's who I, how I started to develop as an individual, my my own personal tastes in movies. So I think that's really what it is more than anything else. But to give you a better answer, <laughs> there was nothing wrong with that answer, and I, sure. I mean that's that's certainly true for you. I don't know that that's necessarily true for me because mm-hmm. I didn't come to. I mean, like, my, I, I was raised in a very strict household as far as movie ratings and what I was allowed to watch. I mean, I was not allowed to play with toy guns. Uh, so my, my parents were very strict on that regard. So a, a lot of the more action-y uh, and especially horror I didn't discover until I was in my, my teens at the, at, mm-hmm. at the earliest. And, and so I think that's definitely true for you. I don't know that that's necessarily true for me. But again, there, there just seems to be this cultural fixation on this era of film, though. I think it's one of the last great eras of practical effects, uh, especially as we start moving into, because you're thinking this is coming out, what, 1986? Right. Um, You know, The Thing was 1982, Blob was 1988, and it's only five years after The Blob that we've got Jurassic Park where we're using the G1s to to digitally create these dinosaurs. And there's a ton of really great practical effects in this, which is why Jurassic Park still stands up and it doesn't look like the garbage that's coming out now. Uh, And I say garbage. (laughs) It's still it's still a miracle, but it's like, ugh, there's no soul. Yeah. And part of that's the script, but like, you know, I, I'm a dinosaur guy. I really, really, really love dinosaurs. I love teaching about dinosaurs. And there's, I don't think Jurassic Park is in any way uh, a perfect film. Have you done Jurassic Park on this? No, I have not done Jurassic Park. Of course Park not. On like, this. who hasn't seen Jurassic Park? 
Who hasn't uh, seen The Matrix? And we did that. So <laughs> no. Oh my God! I, at work yesterday, one of my coworkers uh, saw me looking at Christmas ornaments from uh, a Hallmark, and there was a um, like a Die Hard one. She goes, "Oh, it's that movie that where things blow up and uh, what's his face gets shot. What's it called?" I'm just like, <laughs> ah, part of me died. Um, no, but I think that's part of it is there's a real joy in the, uh, the practical effects in these films. That's a good point because you're, you're right. The, the, the practical effect approach is kind of a dying art. I mean, I think it's funny how often when talking contemporary films, we focus on, oh, and they did practical effects because it's become such a novelty now. Right. Even though I do think it generates a, a, a better product in the long run. And that's not that's not to say that there aren't good digital movies out there. But I mean, take take Star Wars, which will, which will segue nicely into another question I have for you, but take Star Wars, for example. The prequels, the effects were almost all digital. The original, the, prex, the effects were all, you know, practical. And a lot of people liked that J.J. Abrams went back to the practical side of things for so many things in the more recent trilogy of Star Wars movies. Because visually, it felt like a Star Wars movie. Right. Uh, the, the Star Wars films that you and I grew up with. and But, you know, I have two siblings who are 20 years younger than I am and the prequels are their Star Wars films and they kind of like the originals but that's not really for them so what you know it I can see I think the best part of those the the newest Star Wars trilogy are the practical effects might be the only things that I like about it. And, and that leads me to my next but, question, because you made a comment uh, when we were having a side conversation. You had made a comment a couple of weeks ago. No, it was on a Facebook post. Uh, you don't like Star Wars. No, no. It's not that I don't like Star Wars. I don't I don't actively dislike Star Wars. I, I'm not a Star Wars fan. Uh, I, I liked the original trilogy. That's a huge part of my life. But when I watched the prequels, a part of me died. It yeah. just died, and it's never grown back. It doesn't matter. You couldn't get, for instance, you couldn't get those three movies on VHS, the proper way to, to watch them if you can't watch them on the big screen. You couldn't put them in a telepod 2. You couldn't put me in telepod 1 and then bring that part of my soul back in telepod 3. It's just not going to happen anymore. And I don't think the new sequels did anything to make me feel the wonder that I felt as a kid. And that's fine. They weren't for me. My life doesn't need that kind of Star Wars romance anymore. I, the direct comment, I think, is how much I loved the first episode of Visions because I'm a Kira right. Kurosawa fan, and that first episode, The Duel, is Seven Samurai meets Yojimbo meets Hidden Fortress meets Star Wars, which basically is just Hidden Fortress. Right. Um, and it, it just it made me love... Like, the first warm feeling I've had for Star Wars in a really long time, and I include The Mandalorian in that, I include the television shows, the the animated stuff, it's just not the world that I need to inhabit anymore. Like, that part of me, it's nothing wrong with it. Please, if you're a Star Wars fan, I, I'm not shaming your fandom. I love that you <laughs> love Star Wars. And it really bothers me. One, that we're talking about Star Wars when we should be talking about The Fly. Uh, and I have another point about why I love these movies uh, as well. It's like, uh, love them watch them i know tons of people who who absolutely adore them and and rightfully so they changed cinema forever yeah and uh sort of made the kind of nerdy fan fan people 
people that we are, you know, like I, yeah, I, I, my first fandom probably was Star Wars, I think. Well, comic books, it's always going to be comic books, but I want to go back to something. Okay. Because there's something with, you know, not only does the thing and the blob and the fly have the in them, right? They're all remakes. And I think when you talk about this period of time, there's a lot of films that are being remade and they're being remade by fans who were fans of the original when they were kids. So there's this nostalgia to them. So the same reason why we're remaking everything again now, um, people our age who are filmmakers and they're just going back to that well that made them happy when they were kids. And, And I grew up watching these classic films. Of course, I didn't go to the drive-ins for these. You know, I, I wasn't around in the 50s. Or was I? Um, but <laughs> my father, you, you should talk about, like, you grew up in this strict household, right, where you weren't allowed to watch certain films and you weren't allowed to play with toy guns. Uh, I think the first movie my dad brought home when we got a VCR was Godzilla 1984. And the second movie that um, he brought home for me to watch was Zardoz. You haven't seen Zardoz, and probably Zardoz will be the next thing that I watch. But anyone who is listening to this who knows Zardoz, try to imagine an eight-year-old watching Zardoz, all right? Okay, now pick up your jaw and put it back into place. (laughs) Wait, you're talking about the fly. You jumped to the fly. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm saying is I, I grew up with inappropriate stuff. Um, And so my father brought these weird movies that uh, kids shouldn't watch, but he also brought these classic, when people start talking about horror movies, uh, and I know that you you can argue as much as you want about whether or not, you know, this movie is a horror movie or or The Green Room is a horror movie, uh, you know, wonderful conversation. It's one that I've been listening to on a couple of podcasts recently, and certainly one that I think I would love to to get into if we wanted to talk for four or five hours, but we don't. The Atomic Age Science Fiction was sort of the thing that that I started to realize that was the stuff that I love. People are like, oh, you know, you, early on you said, you, you never thought of me as a horror guy. And it's true. I'm a creature guy. I really like monsters. And um, my love for that started in the atomic age science fiction slash horror. So, you know, the thing from another world and the original Fly trilogy and them. Oh my God, giant ants. Mm-hmm. I love me some giant ants. But I also really love the day the earth stood still right yes. or forbidden planets i love giant i like the 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 1950s robot aesthetic so that sort of aesthetic of film is something that like i raised in so when they started remaking these films i had seen all of them so of course i'm not going to go see an r-rated film in the theater because I'm, I'm very young at this point in time but even in 1986 as soon as this film came out on vhs my dad's like we're getting the fly right yeah, we're getting the fly. Of course we're watching the fly. And that, you know, I think halfway through he went, yep, I'm out. And I'm like, I'm still in. I'm still in. <laughs> and I think the fly really was my doorway to Cronenberg. And uh, Cronenberg's films are very hard to find in the United States, especially his early stuff. Uh, so a lot of his early stuff, which I now hold very dear, are films that I didn't see until a teen. I was uh, in my late teens because I had to travel outside of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to find them. I had to go to theaters uh, who were doing, uh, you know, midnight shows and stuff like that. I, it's, a, it's a tangent, but there we go. We kind no. of got to everything. No, that, that, that got to everything. Okay. Also, Star Wars. 
I kid because I care. You, you, I do. We should correct that point. Uh, yeah, you did not say you don't like Star Wars. We were talking about Visions. I said I liked it even though I'm not an anime fan. And you said you, you liked it even though you weren't a Star Wars fan. So you're, you're, you're yeah. correct. I was putting bad words in your mouth. I apologize. It's fine. I, I, <laughs> I have, I've had a lot of chances to badmouth Star Wars uh, over the last couple of years, and I and I've done it, and and I'm, I'll I'll be honest. Just thinking about the last movie, I, I'm I'm getting angry. So let's change the. All right, subject. so let's talk about you picked the Fly from 1986. I did. Written by David Cronenberg and Charles Edward Pogue, based on a short story by George Langelan, which I had no idea this was based on a short story. Directed by David Cronenberg, starring Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and John Getz. Yep, and that's it. And that's, right? And that's pretty much, I mean, this, you got one more person, but I didn't put her in there, but pretty much that's it. Well, I mean, you know, we have we have a couple of other people who play bit parts, but the, really, this is kind of a three-hander. It's kind of a triangle. The only other individual who you might count is the baboon, because the baboon gets a, uh, quite a lot of screen time up until it disappears. I'd say uh, the other woman gets more screen time, but yeah. Well, we see more of the other woman. Oh, no, I guess that's not true. You do see a lot of that baboon both outside and in. Anyway. Um, oh, my God. All right. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is... I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? Wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. Could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Help me. Please help me. do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? Uh, David Cronenberg does The Fly. Right, but, I mean, if you know if you know Cronenberg and you know The Fly, then that's all you need to know. I know, I know that's what I said. But if people John haven't Carpenter's seen this, the thing, they probably but, yeah. don't know Cronenberg. Right. So this is a, uh, a science fiction body horror film that is also a parable. It's a, a, both a love story and a meditation on how our bodies betray us as we get older. 
and but it's a but it's it takes a science fiction bent. Um, I watched this film for the very first time with the director's commentary on last night. Hadn't done it before. I just bought a Blu-ray box set of all five of the Fly films recently, mainly for this, but also I really wanted it. Um, <laughs> and I got to listen to Cronenberg talk over a movie, and it's exactly as you imagine Cronenberg talking over a movie. Very clinical, very soft-spoken. It's not passionate at all. And he talks like this the entire time. And anyway, um, yeah, it's a weird film because you could describe this as being sort of a Beauty and the Beast film. You could kind of describe this as um, similar in the both as the blob and the thing as a meditation on the AIDS epidemic, though um, Cronenberg has very specifically said that that was not his intention. It was all about aging. It's about looking in the mirror and not recognizing what you're seeing. Now, keep in mind, Cronenberg didn't write this script. Poe wrote the script it's based off of the original Long Long script. You know, they made a movie of it. They had been pitching this thing forever. Cronenberg uh, wasn't even going... Like, they wanted Cronenberg, but Cronenberg... This is what blows my mind. Cronenberg was going to be doing Total a Total Recall, recall right? Yeah. So he was originally attached to Total Recall. Um, there was another pr- uh, director attached to do this film. Something uh, tragic happened with his family. Cronenberg wasn't getting along with the producers, and sort of they just basically switched. And when you talk... When you read his articles or listen to him talk about what he did, what he essentially added to this film was the human element. He removed more people from it so we could just focus on this love triangle right. and really up the the human factor. And he, and in the interviews, he says, you know, if this was a wasn't a science fiction film, this would just be a drama about two people falling in love, a, a one of which whom has a, a debilitating disease. And what is it like to be with someone knowing that 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 is the inevitable outcome and it's happening quickly right so it's not like we're going to be together forever this is we fall in love and then something happens and you know we have stories like this that are quite popular but none of them are done by Cronenberg the master of body horror so you're going to get a lot of pus and a lot of ooze and bits falling off and ripping off and and you know vomit and fluids Cronenberg is a biological entity he really likes his fluids uh, he really wants to you to get inside his head by showing you what's inside your body uh, or someone else's. Why I like that, I don't know. But I'll be damned if I don't count most, like, a good chunk of his early works from the beginning until, say, the early 2000s as some of my favorite films of all time. So why, because uh, you, you made a comment to me the other day that you don't want to your appearances on this to, to pigeonhole you as the horror guy, but y- you did go with the thing. You did go with the blob. Now this, you, you have talked about their similarities already, but why, uh, you know, you, you've mentioned Zardoz. You've mentioned that to me before mm-hmm. as well. Why this movie? Why? And I know this was one you were excited about doing, but it was also one you were holding off on doing. Well, so there's a couple things you and I had talked about, you know, looking behind the scenes here, you and I talked about doing a couple of films, but they were like, you know, you could come. It's been a year since you've been on the podcast. You want to have, we and, talked about and people watching. have maybe finished that episode now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're kind of talking about like, you know, we could watch another horror movie. It, I think more than anything else, I mentioned a couple of films that I thought I would like to talk about. And, I, you know, again, you mentioned you hadn't seen Zardoz. I was like, oh, we got to talk about Zardoz. You hadn't seen Blood of Heroes. We got to talk about Blood of Heroes. And you're like, well, I haven't seen The Fly. How have you How have you not seen The Fly? And so that really, more than anything else, is I kind of want to share that experience. I'm really curious because I really like how your brain works around movies. I like listening to you talk about movies. And, and I, I wanted to... 
because you know, this is something that I have been watching since 1987, probably 1998, 1988, sorry. Uh, and so it has been a part of me to the point where I don't really even need to see what's on the screen to know exactly what's happening in this film. I've seen it 30 <laughs> plus times. There was a period in my life where it was just one of those VHSs I put on and like did my homework with this going on. I know I I'm probably says too much about me as an individual. Yeah, that, ex- that explains a few things. <laughs> so, you know, like people are like, oh, it's so gross. I'm like, I don't see it as that. Like, it's just, I, I've seen it so many times where actually what I see now is the drama and the human element of it. And so that's very different, I imagine, that most people are going to see coming in, coming in uh, cold to this. So I wanted to have that conversation. It's weird, too, because, you know, this is coming to come out around Halloween, right? It's right. going to be like a Halloween episode. This is not really Halloween-y. No. Like it's it's not a autumnal. There's a clinical dryness. There's not the one thing I will say about this episode versus a lot of other Cronenberg is this is less of a clinically clean, white, shiny surface kind of science and more of a grimy industrial gritty yeah. industrial aspect of it. Um which is different for, for his stuff. I, yeah. Now, I can't remember. How many Cronenberg films have you watched? Well, I mean Eastern Promises is very grimy, gritty as well. Yes. I mean, so he kind yeah. of takes that kind of takes that forward. Um, mm-hmm. This, this I, I have not seen a ton mm-hmm. of Cronenberg films. I, I told you uh, a couple weeks ago, I watched The Dead Zone in kind of right. anticipation right. of this because I had never seen that. And that's the film that precedes this one in his filmography. Now I've seen this, uh, Eastern Promises, uh, a couple others in there, but not a, not a ton of Cronenberg. But you haven't stuff. seen Videodrome. I have not seen Videodrome. No. Oh my God. You and I are going to have to start a new podcast where we just watch, where I just inflict my favorite films on you and you go, no, please, I have a family. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cronenberg. Love, love me some Cronenberg. Let, let's, let me go ahead and throw in the critical stuff real quick. Cause I, cause I feel like I keep, I keep feeling myself wanting to talk and I want to make sure we get this in 93% at Rotten Tomatoes. This is a well reviewed movie. 79% at Metacritic, so some of those reviews have gone down over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, bring in a positive and a negative review. The negative review comes from Pat Graham of the Chicago Reader, who writes, David Cronenberg's 1986 remake of the Vincent Price Shocker, though what it reminds you of most is its uneasy meld of physical deformity and romance, is Peter Bogdanovich's mask. The mixture didn't work there and doesn't here either. Image so much subverts intention that Jeff Goldblum's tragic fly person finally seems more ludicrous than affecting, voyeuristically bizarre. For a while, Goldblum's quirkiness as teleportation master Seth Brundle keeps the movie afloat, but as he sinks irrevocably into his fly suit, everything else sinks with him. I'm going to go ahead and jump into the positive because it literally is almost the polar opposite of the negative. Positive comes from Dave Kerr of the Chicago Tribune. I love when I can pull in two reviews from the same city because it's Right, like, sure. <laughs> uh, oh, he, Chicago. He wrote, Though his films are filled with powerful original images and driven by fresh and disturbing ideas, he has never been able to put together a fully functional narrative with action that develops smoothly and logically and characters who can command our complete identification. The fly changes all that. Cronenberg finally has become a complete filmmaker, weaving both visual concepts and convincing emotions into a full-bodied creation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I agree with the positive one. I disagree with the negative one. But again, to each their own. Um, this is that it sounds like our first reviewer just couldn't look past what they were seeing on the screen. And, and I'll tell you the first hint that you can tell why this the, our negative reviewer is just not a good reviewer is they refer to um, the original Fly as a, as a Vincent Price film. Uh, and while Vincent Price is in it, 
Vincent Price is not the star of that film. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, the original Fly, which I, I also rewatched. I also reread the short story. So I reread the short story, which was uh, published in June 1957 in Playboy magazine, which I have been trying to get a copy of that. It was one of those things that I did not realize where it had originally come from. And the fact that works like this are, are published in Playboy is just like, what? Oh my gosh, what a cool cool thing. I, I'm going to just gloss over the fact that trying to find copies of Playboy on eBay it has its their own problems because <laughs> you know they're all going to become used. Co- anyway, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's two Cronenberg guests oh, to discuss. Oh. But, but 1958's we're dis- we're The Fly. We're discussing The Fly. We're discussing a movie where a man's body falls apart and you somehow just made it more gross. <laughs> Fluids. Anyway, um, the 1958 film is essentially... A one-woman show. Uh, the George Langelon's short story is a mystery. It's so... Well, I want to call it brilliant. I, Cronenberg didn't seem to like it. That's no, fine. No, I read that, yeah. To each their own. I loved it. I don't think it's the most nuanced writing ever, but the idea that in the beginning there's a crime, a crime of passion, a horrific crime of passion like grotesque and the whole story is a mad woman's ravings and a police chief and vincent price trying to figure out what exactly is true and what is false in the story that she's telling is she in fact mad and patricia owens who plays the the, the wife of this scientist is a vision it's amazing i think i think the first fly is a masterpiece I think it got as close to, I don't know know how to describe this, but there are certain things the time period would not, and the genre would not have allowed them to do, but they adhered very closely to the original short story, and it's so striking. Uh, I watched it about a week and a half ago, and then immediately went back and watched it again for a second time, and I remember watching it. But I also remember my memory of watching it was the film was in black and white and it was all about these grotesque fly makeup. And it's not. It's in color. And the fly makeup is barely in it. And it's really just this one woman trying to deal with this impossible situation. And it is really cool. So if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's a very different story than what Cronenberg gives us. But Cronenberg has taken cherry picked some really actually I should say poke really cherry picked some really great elements and then Cronenberg came in and brought a very different take on the love story but the original fly is very much a love story but it is also about a husband and a wife and and what a wife will do a wife and a mother will do to protect her family too I, I think I think if you haven't checked that one out I, mean, I, I say this to both you and your listeners it's it's certainly worth taking a look I, it's got to be streaming somewhere it's Halloween for it's. I yeah. mean, it's it's available for rent. It's not streaming included oh, okay. with anybody that I found. Because I because I, I did want to watch it before we recorded this, and unfortunately, I just ran out of time. Sure. Um, well, so I will I pitch this too. If you original. are a collector of these kind of films, um, Scream Factory came out with a five Blu-ray set box set, uh, box art by Alex Ross, right? Of like out of nowhere, they're all five Blu-rays for the original Fly, uh, the Return of the Fly, Curse of the Fly, Fly, and then Fly Two. If you can get it at a good price, I recommend it especially if this is the kind of thing that you think you're going to watch. It's definitely the kind of thing that I know that I'm going to rewatch a couple of times. I've, I've watched both the original fly and the, the fly twice each in the last week and a half. So, you know, I already felt like I got my money's worth. So. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I, I had not seen this prior to you picking it, which apparently was part of your motivation in picking it. And 
I know this is an iconic horror film. Like I know everyone loves this movie, and and I mean I've I've had a day since I watched it. It's definitely been prevalent in my thoughts, like in the back of my brain, kind of just working this out. But to kind of go back to the whole the the whole green room thing, this is not a horror movie. It, it's it, not a no, it's not. It has, and you're I mean you're right. This is episodes running uh, Halloween week, but it, it's not a good Halloween movie. And I know lots of people who go Gaga this time of year and spooky season and let's watch the fly. And it's like, this, this, this isn't that movie. I mean, yes, it no. has the, the body horror element of it with the makeup and the, the boy, the, the, the makeup effects. Like I took note of them the first time Jeff Goldblum's face changed where it started having like acne and, mm-hmm. and, and lesions starting to appear and that kind of stuff. And it was like, boy, the makeup is top notch in this, but Ultimately, there's no story here. It's a character piece, yes. and I don't and I don't hear people talking about that. And the problem I have right now, again, I'm still digesting the film. The problem I have with it being a character piece, in part, is I don't like Gina Davis. I've never cared for her as a leading lady. Like Beetlejuice aside, she just. I, she kind of annoys me, and I find the romance between these two characters, I don't feel it. I don't believe mm-hmm. it. I feel like it's rushed, and it's, I mean, there's some cute moments, like in the, the, the get-go, like I, I wrote down the whole, uh, uh, her, her saying to him, you know, somehow I get the feeling you don't get out much, and his response is, you can tell that? Like, there, there, <laughs> and, there's a, and there's a charm to the way he delivers that line, but... Like she's a like I felt like she's this clueless journalist. For being a journalist, she goes to this guy's lab. He shows her the telepods, as you already referenced, and she can't immediately put two and two together to go, well, what are these for? You know, it's like she's like, well, what do they do? What do they do? What do they do? And it's like, really? Uh, she's apparently not a Star Trek fan. <laughs> so I, I I mean, it's it's not that I didn't like it. Because I do, but it is really not the movie I anticipated. There is, there is well, no. There's I don't want not- you. To, I don't want you to come in thinking that you know what's going to happen because I think <laughs> that's part of the joy. Listen, if I'm going to throw a lot of films at you in the future, of films that you you haven't seen that you don't, you know, you can't possibly guess what kind of experience you're going to have because that's part of the joy of talking about movies. There you go. But there's, but there's no, there's no story to this. There is a story. Come on. I mean, I no, there's, it is there's a, a story, but it, but there's still there's still an idea behind it because there is a, a theory and there's a philosophy behind what it what is happening. You're right. There's not a lot of meat on the screen. Uh, and okay, it, it there is, but it's sloughing <laughs> off of of Jeff Goldblum slowly and surely after the second first act. But I want to talk about oh God. There's so much to talk about in this film. Can we just talk about the opening where? Like, we get these credits, and then it just, you're at a party. Hey, you want to come back to my lab? Boom. Done. There's no cold open. It just starts. Right. And what's cool about this, what I I love, and I haven't actually heard Cronenberg talk about this much, but the first thing we do is we see all of these people, and we pick these two individuals out of all these people, and they leave the party. These two weird-looking individuals, because neither of these people are, you know, traditional Hollywood. (laughs) 
Keep in mind, this is Gina Davis's first role. She she only got this role because she was dating Jeff Goldblum at the time. Right. Um, Goldblum had been chosen, and he's he's an odd choice. You know, if yes. you look at his career up uh, leading up to this point, I think it's like first her first his first role is in Woody Allen, the nineteen seventy seven. Uh, what is the one he won the the first Academy Award for? Manhattan. Um, no. Uh, Annie Hall. Annie Hall. <laughs> Annie Hall. I feel like I feel like that's his first role because uh, it's it's that scene uh, where like they're walking in a party and and Jeff Goldblum's just on the phone and he just goes someone help I've forgotten my mantra you know like just, and that's like the only line you you, you hear from him and again I could be misremembering about where the role is but no, they, they hire sure right. him they're casting all these women and he's like you know I've got this girlfriend she'd probably be perfect that she came in to do the part they said they wanted someone to have kind of instant chemistry but I think it's fine again though I've been watching this movie for 25 years or whatever it is so for me it's they're always going to be this this very weird couple it's not this is not normal no. these people aren't normal they're not supposed to be normal it's not a normal film it's not a normal situation but it is about falling in love and then finding out that your love is not destined to to turn out the way you might want, uh, and then when well, you get isn't Stathis that every out there, love? <laughs> isn't that all love? I mean, I, th- I think it's a compelling story. But you're right; it is a character piece. It's a character piece with uh, it's, a, it's a story with a lot of guts. Um, it's oh, God. I didn't realize you were going to bring the bad jokes this time. <laughs> I, I think this is an interesting film. Uh, I think the the way he's telling the story, he's not complicating it with anything else. There's not a B plot. If there's a no. B plot, it's Stathis and this this kind of third, this ex lover who is this kind of yuppie, smarmy, nasty individual who actually turns out to be kind of a heroic character. Like the, there's a there's a moment in the film where the, their kind of roles flip. I'm not, I'm not going to go as far as heroic, but what what is it with '80s movies? Because you already mentioned. Die Hard. What uh-huh. is it with this era of movies with the beard just equaling total douchebag? Uh, well, okay. So I have a beard, <laughs> as we talk. As I you said can that see, era. I didn't say yeah. now. I said that and I, era. And I'm talking about movies that I love from this era, so right. I don't know what you're doing. I listen, if, the, if you need to, to label me as a total douchebag, just come out and say it, Rafe. Come on, man. Um, we've known each other long enough. No, but he, but he is. You, you cannot deny that. Oh no, he's he's total garbage. He's a garbage human being. And Stathis is going on my list of like. I think we had Tevin from another episode of the podcast when we talked about uh, "I Love You, Man." That Tevin is just a name that immediately makes you go, "This guy's a jerk." I'm adding Stathis to this list. <laughs> oh yeah, but you know Stathis is going to show up in Game of Thrones. And you're like, "Oh, it's an awesome name." I'm gonna make a D and D character named Stathis. He would Stathis Baratheon. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, he's not a good person. Uh, I, if there was a a, a, a competent HR in in uh, that department of of um, whatever the magazine is called now, propulsion? No, particle. Yeah, uh, yeah if particle HR. Because it's also because it's also his license plate. Real subtle. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, we live in Virginia, where uh, two thirds of all license plates are, are personalized. Personalized. Yeah, I we have all personalized have, plates. They don't say yeah. I have not seen this. <laughs> they should. <laughs> it's they like, should. I what? need to fix that. Car says I haven't seen it, but I saw it right there. Anyway, that's sorry. That's not a Virginia accent. I apologize. I am from the South, though, so I, I'm. Anyway, oh, no, I'm saying the fly, right? I, I, yeah. I mean, the, the, just I, I really enjoy it 
and the the more I read about it after I watched it, and the more I've thought about it, I really enjoy it from the vantage point. And I'm, that's part of why I was really honing in on how would you how would you describe this movie to someone? Because I really yeah. enjoyed it as this idea of what cancer or age or disease does to a person and and mm-hmm. what it does to a relationship. And when I think about the movie I watched from that perspective, it's a much better movie than hearing hundreds of nerds on the internet say, horror movie, can't wait to watch The Fly, because this is not a horror movie. No, it's not. Agreed. Cronenberg has gone on... You know, he, he will occasionally refer to this as a body horror film because... I think he's been he's been labeled kind of the master of body horror and right. I, I think it's I think it's correct but it's not a horror film there's horrific elements in it I, I think the horror is you know it has to intentionally try to scare you mm-hmm. you can have we're all going to come at horror in different ways certain things that horrify me might not horrify you and vice versa um, but I think you're right this is a drama this is a, a a science fiction horror drama I think there's a blending of that in here and I don't think this is trying to scare you I think it is trying to no. disgust you no boy, you're right it's it's successful in that well I think it's so here's the thing it's not really about scaring you in the moment it's about putting these thoughts in your head about what is going to happen to you in your future and bringing that kind of dread for your future rather mm. than the movie's present than that what you're kind of getting at with this right? that's it's, fair it's I think that really the telling scenes are when not when we as an audience or Gina Davis's character are looking at the fly those are not the horrific parts it's when he's looking in the mirror yes and he's seeing the changes that are happening to himself and there are these moments it's almost sort of like acceptance denial anger all of that happens and there's a moment towards the end where he starts to accept who he is and how how, how much are we spoiling this film we're gonna spoil all of it right yeah 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 up until the point where he finds out that he is going to disappear and he's okay with that like he is he is moving on to some form of evolutionary change and then realize that that he is not going to be able to be a father to he and veronica's child but is he okay with it because then the most action that this movie sees is him capturing ronnie to put her in the telepod to basically put him back to human that he he's been hypothesizing with this computer about how to to restore him as a human and it it's about reinvigorating him with human dna and he chooses his girlfriend and child for that right so is that really acceptance of his fate because he's still fighting against it well, what I said was he accepted it up until the point oh, he found okay. out that he was not going to be able to be a part of this child's life and that he, that made him realize that he is going to be disappearing. So our lineage, you know, this, this big thing about, you know, being able to pass on our genes, it's all about genes, it's all about genetics. That doesn't occur to him. He's He is just, he's been a part of his science project. But then the reality of there is going to be a future for your bloodline moving forward and you're not going to be a part of it. Right. In the same way that when I look in the mirror and and I go, wow, I don't have kids yet. How is my bloodline going to move forward? Not to get too personal, but, you know, like that's a thing that I think about. Oh, sure. So, you know, like or one day the the relationships that I have, they're going to be gone. How am I going to be remembered? But he hasn't shown anybody else that he's changed. He's accepted that he can walk on walls. He's talked about how he still feels invigorated. He how he, he has adapted to this new style. It's not until she says, I'm pregnant, we're going to have a child, that he just loses it, and that kind of hammers home. Uh, and I think that's, that's again, kind of telling. 
So mm. that, that that's where the change. That's your beginning of your third act, right? So it's like yeah. I'm pregnant. Oh my god. Now he's and he goes on the offensive too. Like he right. he you know, it doesn't become a horror film, an outward horror film, right? Because who is he hurting? He's hurting himself. He's hurting a couple of baboons. He's breaking the arm of a of a major boxer turned arm wrestler uh, in, in, in a bar. He attempts to hurt. Uh, I don't even remember what her name was. But yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's not until that third act where he starts to become sort of more aggressive. And we see that again, actually, in the sequel to The, the, the Fly, where it's, it really is just a, a human piece. And then uh, it becomes a, a special effects gore fest in the, the third act. And they, the, the sequel to The Fly, Fly 2, which is not done by Cronenberg, but it's actually directed by Wallace, the, the Academy Award winning special effects makeup guy from this one. So this is the only film that Cronenberg won the Academy Award for, uh, for, for makeup. So it wasn't even actually something that he won. With Eric Stoltz is in the sequel too. And um, Daphne Zuniga. Zuniga, who, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's weird to see uh, a Druish princess um, up as the love interest <laughs> with, with uh, Eric Stoltz. And there's a moment where they actually, his name is Martin. Uh, the, the character is Martin Brundle. And they actually refer to him as Marty, which is such a burn because Stoltz was up for the role of Marty McFly. Right. And they, they got rid of him. And so anyway, a tangent. By the way, I've had a lot of sugar in my coffee uh, tonight. I don't know if you can tell this. Um I have, in fact, gone through the telepod a couple of times, and I'm, I'm <laughs> feeling quite invigorated. Um... <laughs> Olivia, is that you? Oh my god, hi, how are you? Honestly, pretty bummed out. What about? I was just reading about how the US government hired Nazis after the Nuremberg trials. Oh my god, I know, can you believe it? I'm kind of on a sad binge too, I <laughs> I stayed up late last night reading about the influenza pandemic of 1918. God, that was devastating. I think I know the book you're talking about too, it's on my list. I've just been really hooked on documentaries right now. Have you seen that Flat Earth documentary? No, no, but I did watch the Fire Festival documentary, it was... <laughs> It was insane. <laughs> Almost as insane as the fact that slavery is still legal in the U.S. I'm... I'm so... Is that a baseline? Hi, I'm Brooke. Are you someone that likes consuming media that feeds your wildest fears? No, no, wait. You Are can't... you a consumer of the macabre and disturbing? You can't just drop something about slavery like we that. We talk all that and more on Things That Keep Me Up at Night, a podcast for those that like to commiserate and learn more about things that we promise will make you lose sleep. Um, uh, we're, uh, we're available on all platforms, and you can find us at TTKMeUp uh, on Instagram and Twitter. New uploads every Friday. Join in on the horror. You were kidding about the slavery thing, right? In the original story, by the way, it's not just a fly. In the original story, he he experiments on a cat, uh, their their sweet little cat Dandelo, and it disappears into the ether. Just just it just doesn't even come into the other pod. He hasn't figured out the organic aspect of it. He sweet tests on the household cat, and it just is kind of floating in space. And then when he goes through with a fly, it's not just the fly. He's actually part cat, part fly, part human. Oh my um, god. Yeah, well, and, and, and that was actually a thought I had while I was watching this when we first see those test sequences with the baboons. 
Uh, mm-hmm. was, was, my, my note that I jotted down was, wouldn't something smaller have been better, at least less messier than the baboon? Mm-hmm. And right. my understanding is there there was a scene with a cat yes. in this yeah, that he got puts, cut. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's strange. I hadn't seen it until a couple of days ago. Uh, I guess I guess I never had the Blu-ray for it. But yeah, so he puts a cat in one, he puts the baboon in the other, and he combines them in Telepod 3. And it's... <laughs> It's really horrifying. And then he smashes it. Oh, right? yeah. Then he beats it to death with a like a, a metal pipe. Which is why they cut it, because they, they felt like after that point, there's no sympathy for Brundle anymore. Mm-hmm. They, once, you've, once you've smashed uh, an animal to death, you're, mm-hmm. you're done. You're, you've lost all sympathy from the audience. Like yeah. you can, yeah. you can beat the women. You can try and force the women into the telepod. You, you know, two different women, but you can't do that to an animal. Yeah, if he had done that to a puppy, that would have been real bad. If he had done it to John Wick's puppy, that would have been even worse. But you know, <laughs> all right. Listen, I want to see your John Wick the Fly crossover fan fiction. Starting now, you can send it to uh, Drimmer. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So, and, th- and that's not the only thing that was cut that I. I uh, like that, I, I, I'm glad was cut because I, I totally understand that. And especially if this is a character piece, you've got to keep the sympathy. And and I do, I do, even through through his entire transformation, even as horrific as Seth becomes, I feel bad for him. And I think that is part of Cronenberg's point with the whole, this is what like a, a disease like cancer or unintentionally AIDS, as you said, or or just old age, that this is what a, it does to a person. You've got to, you've got to maintain a, a level of sympathy for that person. But like, Stathis suddenly having a, a shotgun out of nowhere. And I was like, come on, that's like, that's a little too convenient. And apparently there was a bit where he was a skeet shooter that mm-hmm. got cut from the film. And if they had left that in, then that would have made more sense. And I would have been like, okay. I mean, it's, this is a short movie. They could have left a little bit of it in, I guess. But True. And and but you know Cronenberg's interesting guy when it comes to what he cuts out. Yeah. This again, this is I think your positive review said this is the first film that you've got a kind of a, a narrative that goes from point A to point B that the audience can follow. Right. And if you haven't watched Videodrome, you might not understand what they're talking about. But your typical Cronenberg film is something in which you don't have to explain everything. I mean, you, he leaves a lot of stuff open. You know, oh shivers oh the brood the brood by the way is the only film that cronenberg at a certain point in time had said was an out and out horror film the rest of them were just kind of like biological dramas or character pieces that had some really grody stuff in it the brood's fantastic oh my goodness but yeah agreed it doesn't make a lot of sense that stathis has this shotgun um but it's clearly a skeet shooting shotgun like i was like i've never seen a shotgun that looks like that but he he does come in and i think the other thing too is he is also aware who seth brundle has become he he's he's kind of knows what the brundle fly is he's seen the videos he's got an idea so being forearmed is forewarned or whatever it is fair enough i, I could i wouldn't dwell on it so much oh, as I'm to ruin my film experience but i agree because i remember thinking the exact same thing where did he get a shotgun I, you know i don't have a shotgun in my trunk probably but you know what it is the 80s man that guy's probably got a shotgun a duffel bag full of cocaine oh god who yes. knows right you know He's probably got skis in his car too. A little get a little high on the powder and a little skeet shooting. Uh, what is it? Where you ski down a hill and fire at guns at Aspen something? I don't know. Go. That's a thing. <laughs> I think it's an Olympic event where it's a you you ski to a certain point and fire at something, then you ski again and fire at something, and then you yeah. I don't know if it's skeet ski shooting sounds like it would be fun, but I don't think that's the thing. So you 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 made the comment about him kind of redeeming himself and and the, or they're kind of being you didn't say redeem himself, but they're kind of being an inversion with him becoming the hero hero. But then I, I like seventy five percent of the movie he's asking her 
uh, Stathis is asking her, do I have permission to claim your body when all this is over with? Oh, no. I'm Listen. Douchebag. I'm not saying... Yeah. He he doesn't balance the scales. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying that he. He suddenly they're not not going to erect shrines to him. He's not going to be heroes. They're not going to sing songs to him in the mead halls. But he is in love with this woman. I think. I think it's safe to say that he is certainly obsessed with her. But I. I think. I, I think obsessed is a better way than saying love. I don't think but love. He but. is. He as as much of a scumbag as he is. When he finds out that she is pregnant, he doesn't abandon her. And again. Listen, I'm not going to judge this guy's previous actions. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that the things that he said or did previous to this moment are good or, or right. They're not. He's an asshole, but he does go after her. He willingly risks his own life to save her when he could have not done so. And it's part of Cronenberg's intention. He says as much that the role of lover and protector switches. Right. Uh, okay. That the, makes sense. At the end. Right. So, and in the same way that you feel for Seth Brundle, the thing that he is going to do to this woman he apparently loves is unspeakable and horrific. And we get a, a reversal of the roles of current lover and ex lover and, and tormentor. Right. Again, doesn't balance the scales. It's just the way he decided to tell the story. Yeah, no, and I, I mean that the the way he chooses to tell the story, like as I said, I I have sympathy for 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 Seth, and I and I think one of the things that that one of the shots that really stood out to me, and, and I mean obviously there's these iconic shots of you know the the fingernails coming off, which just ugh, that that creeped me out, but like he tells her that she has to go, that he can never see her again. <sighs> And when she's leaving, he's up on the rooftop looking down at them getting in the car and leaving. And it's it has almost this Quasimodo yes. disconnection feel. It's a like that is a fantastic moment for Jeff Goldblum and 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 on cinema, just the way that's shot and, and and like I loved that. That made me feel for the character. Well, you're missing one of the best. I what I think is one of the best parts of that scene is he just doesn't send her away. He sends her away because if you stay, I'm going to hurt you. Right, right. And it's not that he's threatening her. He doesn't want to hurt her, but he doesn't understand the change that's about to happen to him. And he he may hurt her. And he, you know, he cares about her. And so he is rejecting her. And then it hurts him to see her go. And that's right. that great. Again, it's very much a Quasimodo scene. It's very much kind of a Beauty and the Beast sort of storyline. Like where, it, where how could you fall in love with this thing? Because she sees the good that is in the monster. I mean, there's a scene in which he's talking, doing the the typical Jeff Goldblum thing, where he's talking and he's fidgeting and he's you know kind of pull tugs on his ear and his ear falls off. Oh yeah, that was and unexpected. <laughs> yeah, and and he starts to you know his his shirt is covered in mucus from where he's obviously secreting through his skin and people are listening at home who have not seen this film and they're going there is no way I am watching this movie this sounds horrible there's some of you who are going I have to watch this movie immediately and you're my people um, but she reaches over and she hugs him and she presses her cheek against the side of his face that just lost an ear and she's weeping over him this is not a woman who cares about what he looks like. She cares about the individual she fell in love with. And Cronenberg is like telling this story about shooting and so and so. He's not dispassionate. He's just not passionate. And this scene happens in the background. The, the volume's off completely. You just hear him talking. And he just pauses and he goes, 
Yeah, so apparently this is the scene that everyone started getting sick at at the theaters. They couldn't imagine showing human affection for someone who looks like this. And he goes, I think I've made my point, right? And he goes on and talks about something else. And you're kind of like, I get it. Yeah, I'm glad I, I gl- I'm glad I heard you say that. Wow. Right? Yeah, that's wow. like, you know, I'm sure people also went, oh my God, he's pulling his own fingernails out. Ah, you know, and he his his little collection, his memento case in, in yeah. the, the medicine chest. It's like, what is that? There's a penis in there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah. Oh, see, I hadn't even thought of that. I could have done without thinking of that. <laughs> Listen, you bought the ticket. You got to ride the ride. This is what Cronenberg does. You gotta, you have to experience full Cronenberg, Marty. So, so, you know, and I did, I did make little notes here, there, kind of, because again, this wasn't the movie. Most I of them was were ooh, no, well, I do have, I do fingernails, gross. Um, but like, I, there were a couple of spots here, or there where I pointed out, you know, little things like, but like, and and what I what I do appreciate about this movie, like, I I made the comment that you know the self testing, it it seemed really impetuous, it seemed really out of character for him. He has taken six years to build this thing. He can't wait a couple of weeks for the tests to come back on the orang on the baboon and make sure that it's okay. And then they explain later on, he has the comment about, I was drunk and upset. And it was like, yeah, okay, now I get it. Like, that makes sense. But because of Goldblum's persona, you didn't, in the moment, see him as drunk and upset. It, we had to, we well, had to be explained that later on. Was it was the giant bottle of vodka in his hand and him ranting about from the desk of Sathis Baratheon or whatever his right. name is? It's like, from, on the desk or under the desk of Sathis? Well, here's the thing, too. You also have to look at his science experiment and his relationship with Ronnie as being parallels. The reason the thing is blowing organic items up is because he is all brain and no heart. Right. It's not until the moment that he has this sexual awakening, this physical awakening, this emotional awakening, that he understands why the science that it's science, but there's no poetry, right? Right. Like that's the thing. And what we see is him for the first time in his life being so passionate, so angry that he does the least scientific thing that right. you can do, which is test yourself. Yeah, but, but what, you know, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, what I you know, in, in the moment I didn't like that because I was like, okay, right. this is a, this is a cheap moment to to move the plot forward, and I liked the fact that for for all the things that that Cronenberg cut or or or, or removed or, or didn't put in, just that one line made me feel better about. Right. The whole thing. I was drunk and upset. And him. And it was a confession. Mm-hmm. It was a confession to her. Even though he was at that point hyped up and, and, and feeling, you know, it, it, what was it, invigorated and um, perfected and all that kind of stuff. Th- there was a confession. I was drunk and I was upset. And I was like, that's that was the point, I think, that I realized, it, or in retrospect, that's the moment where I, where I go, yeah, this is a character piece. This is not... Mm-hmm. This is not the movie that all of these people made me think it is. This is about this relationship. And yeah. I, I wish it had been someone other than Gina Davis. And that's a personal shortcoming. I, I, I totally yeah, that's I on own you, that. Bud. I totally yeah, own that's that. On that's you. on me. I was just trying to think of Julia Roberts in this role. Uh, you know, uh, you could switch. You could switch Gina Davis and Julia Roberts uh, from The Fly and and Mary, not Mary Roberts, clearly not Mary Roberts, Mary something come on there was a Jekyll and Hyde movie where uh, it's the maid who oversees what's happening with the experiments and it's not good I do not know what you're talking about now but I'm fascinated (laughs) Mary Riley is the name of the film 
and I think it's Julia Roberts who's in it. My God, I hope it's Julia Roberts and not Gina Davis, because if I'm just replacing Gina Davis with Gina Davis, then I haven't done anyone. This is like the third film that they did together, too. I think Transylvania 65,000. And Earth Girls Are Easy, yeah. Earth Girls Are Easy. My God, what a makeup job on, on uh, Goldblum on that one. Oh, the full body feather suit. That one's nuts. We should talk about... One of the many great lines in this film, which is be afraid, be very afraid. The, f- the line, which was essentially written by the producer of this film, Mel Brooks. Silent producer on the film. Silent, silent producer. And rightly rightly so. Um, you know, I, I if I knew this was produced by Mel Brooks, I probably would not have gone into the theater. Uh, well, I didn't go into the theater, but I, I wouldn't have watched this film uh, with the same state of mind. Uh, who's like, yeah, she should be afraid. She should be very afraid. And like, how many times have you heard that line since right and you told me that this originates in this movie and i did not believe you i had to go out and do my own research because we're like no that thing's been around for decades well one 86 is decades ago (laughs) yeah this is almost 40 years old (laughs) two uh no that this is where it came from yeah can i tell you just how happy i am to hear that you went and did your own research because boy (laughs) what a different world it would be if people actually did that right um Yeah, this is a. I love this film. This this film is very much a part of my DNA, uh, just as much as Cronenberg is a very much a part of my DNA. But it's not a. Well, I wouldn't say it's not a complicated film, but it's it's fairly straightforward. It, uh, it's great special effects, fun science stuff. I really like. This is one of those things where you could watch this as a stage piece because there's not a lot of people in it you don't need to to have much you could do a single stage with a couple of telepods on either side i don't know how you'd pull it off maybe if you well they you did an a, opera um, version of this they did an opera version of it of course it's a howard shore uh helped score, work on that right. too yeah yeah howard shore score howard shore who's who's i think one of the first composers whose name i learned because they do all, all of almost all of cronenberg's films or at least did up to a certain point right. i should say there's there's another connection between this movie and uh the blob and the thing in that the cinematography was done by mark Irwin, who also did uh the work on the blob yeah um, I, I didn't realize that until i was doing research after after i saw it and i was like oh yeah I, i'm yeah. seeing i'm seeing a visual style that appeals to drew <laughs> yeah i know i'm pretty basic um <laughs> all right I, one more thing i want to bring up and then i'll ask you please. if you've got anything else so apparently fox had slated this for another remake back in the the early 2000s and they wanted to take a more action-oriented take on it, which is kind of what I was expecting. They wanted to see Brundle fly with wings and going on a killing spree and that kind of stuff. How would you feel about that? I mean, it's dead in the water now, at least for this five minutes, but how would you feel about that? They'll they'll, they'll remake it. This is one of those films where it's just, it's only a matter of time before, we've already gotten another thing. We're going to get another blob, which I believe Samuel Jackson's attached to, and we're going to get another fly. That's that's fine. I mean, if you want to see Brundlefly running amok, killing people, just watch the fly part two. Um, There's a scene where there's there's basically the, the third act of the movie is just a giant monstrous fly demon creature just ripping mercenaries and security guards to shreds I, there's it almost got an x rating for a uh, exploding head uh, gag that's that's pretty <laughs> horrific I, I i think it's fine i think it's fine i think the original fly is a film unto itself i think this fly is a film unto itself in the same way that the sequels to the original fly are diff- completely different thematically than the the sequel to this fly is any later i, I don't have a problem with remakes clearly Clearly, I don't have a problem with remakes. You know, in the same way that if I don't like 
you know, new Star Wars, it's fine. I don't ever have to watch it again. I could just go back and watch old Star Wars. I don't, you know, you didn't ruin my childhood. It's fine. I got my childhood. It's still there. Well, okay, that's not true. You need to stop changing things, George Lucas. Anyway, um... <laughs> third time is the charm. We learned that in improv, right? So, um... <laughs> Yeah, if they want to do a Baxter Stockman versus the Turtles-esque fly uh, combat scenario, I'd be down for it. Uh, You know, as long as we're not in the middle of a pandemic, I'll go and see it in the theater. You know, if it's just Splattercore, hell, I might even like that just as much. It's fine because it's just a different theme. You know, like the 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 original story isn't this story so i you know i don't have to say well they're not keeping with the original intent of the author or filmmaker it's fine that's change is good especially when it's a good change uh someone's gonna love that just as much as i love this and you know more power to them drink deep from the anyway um all right so what have we not talked about with the fly that you want to make sure we get in you know i think we covered a lot of stuff i i think no i think i think i i'm pretty good on it i think if we go any deeper to it we're just going to look at nitpicking stuff so i think i've i feel like i've said my piece i feel like i've okay. defended it i you know i'm sorry that you didn't like certain parts of it but that's fine i think i think no. and here's the thing i think you're going to think about this film and that, that, that's what i was just about to say is it's not that i didn't like certain things about it because as i said it's been ruminating in my brain since i watched it it's that in the moment of watching it it was not what i was expecting and my i then was focusing on petulant stuff i mean you know yeah but but that doesn't detract i mean i enjoyed it don't get me wrong i i enjoyed it i'm glad i watched it i'm glad i get to chat with you about mm-hmm. it but it, it part of that experience is realizing and and kind of navigating the fact that this was not the movie that for so many years I've been led to believe that it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those things where even I think it'd been probably about five or six years since I'd watched it prior to my rewatching it for this podcast. I've probably watched this movie in my sleep in the past. I've watched it so many times, but there are certain like the, the, the level of commitment to the character development was something I sort of forgot about mm-hmm. and rewatching it now I, I was watching it going I'm watching it with you in mind going how's Rafe gonna think about this <laughs> what is, what's he gonna think about that and then and I, I kind of like that you know it's like me watching a movie with my wife anytime I watch a movie together I'm, I'm rarely watching the movie for myself I'm going she hates this she's gonna hate this she's never gonna want to watch another movie she's never gonna let me choose another movie again this is why I never choose The Fly which is why she's never seen The Blob The Fly or The Thing with me <laughs> No, but it's it's the the visuals will stick with you and the story will stick with you and I think the more you see it and the more you think about it and the more you talk about it with other people or you know even me then you will find something more to like about it. I I feel yeah. uh, again, I agree. It's not the autumnal jump scare laden thing that we come to expect from Halloween. It's neither supernatural or slashery. Um the the violence is all almost internal and uh self-inflicting and self-harming so it's it's a it's a weird one it is but it i'm is. glad that you can now say that you have seen this i i have seen this now all right let's move into our end game here a couple of games before we're done first up is the algorithm says this is a list of movies that uh various movies that different algorithms say you will like because you liked the the fly so this is like a lightning round of your responses do you like these movies do you not like these movies do you not see how they're connected there's some interesting ones here uh you ready yes 
All right, first up, Videodrome. <laughs> Long you had to know. You had to know that was coming. <laughs> I can't wait to talk to you about Videodrome one day. <laughs> okay. Uh, scanners. Again, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, another Cronenberg film. You'd think that there's a lot more action because when you think about Scanners, there's one or two scenes you're always remembering. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's really not as much uh, exciting stuff as you remember. It's just that guy's head exploding. Right. Now, that one but, I have seen. Okay, uh, good. I will say that one good. I have That's seen. a fun one. Okay. The Dead Zone. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, it's Christopher Walken and Cronenberg. <laughs> what? What's not to like? You got to love it. You've got Walken. You've got Cronenberg. And Stephen King, it's like a trifecta. Anyway, yeah. All right, The Fly 2. You know, so I rewatched The Fly 2 I had seen in the past. It's not bad. And I'll tell you why I watched it specifically, not just for this conversation. The script Well, my guess is, is you written. watched it because you bought a five Blu-ray disc set that includes it. <laughs> True, but I also bought the five Blu-ray disc set because Frank Darabout wrote the script for The Fly 2. He did. He did. Did and you can tell there's a lot. I mean, you know, he has those hidden guns. There's a lot of checkoff bits there where like things come back around. Is it a perfect film? No. Is it a well directed film? No. Um, but it has its merits. It definitely has its merits. Um, it goes completely off the rails in the third act and becomes a creature feature. I'm not complaining, but it is tonally very different. But yeah, pretty okay. fun. All right, an American werewolf in London. Oh my God, I love that movie. Um, <laughs> really, you're talking about Rick Baker's transformation sequence, right, from 1981, uh, the year of the werewolf, right? So you know, the howling American werewolf, Wolfen. But with, with the exception of the transformation scene, which is all happening in front of you, that's the real only connection I can I can see. Also, there's a little bit of comedy, and, and there's a lot of personal drama in it. But but again, uh, beautiful film. Amazing film. I, I, John Landis, issues with him. Beautiful film. Okay. Gremlins. Ooh. I think the reason that Gremlins is on here, well, <laughs> Gremlins is one of those films where it's like, I probably saw it at an early age and shouldn't have, right? Because right. it was marketed to children and it should not have been. But also the the folks who worked on um, The Fly were asked to work on Gremlins 2 and they did that. Uh, this one instead because they did the gremlin they, they, they were asked that because yeah. they did gremlins it's actually the yeah. same special effects uh chris wallace did uh gremlins and then did this so yeah and they they wanted to try some stuff they hadn't done before and you now granted both gremlins is it's uh, one of those films where it's like nice and grotesque gremlins too a little less so um but yeah i mean i, I think clearly wallace's team rose to the challenge and, and were rewarded for it okay carrie uh, one, I love Carrie. I like the book. I like the movie. Um, and I think what what's kind of wonderful about Carrie is the personal drama that is happening inside and that, that is externalized through her violence. And I think you can draw some ties to that where you're dealing with, again, that's a little bit more Halloween appropriate, but, um, <laughs> but it's still sort of happening, except it's just, you know, imagine that on a smaller scale. If it, if it was just Carrie, her friend, the boyfriend and the mother if those were the only four characters and then we we're telling this story of that personal relationship and then we have that kind of explosive third act maybe change the third act to just the home when we get the original ending with this sort of like the stoning of the house or not the ending but the, the scene that they deleted from carrie but yeah i can see that yeah okay. I'm, that's not too far off all right the exorcist yeah again uh one of those films where there are certain moments that just stick with you but it's kind of a slow burn leading up to those scenes. Yeah, I could kind of see that. And finally, a, a John Carpenter flick that did not appear in the algorithm on either of your other appearances, Prince of Darkness. 
Mm. Oh, Prince of Darkness. How much Nigel Neal are you? F- how how much of Nigel Neal's work are you familiar with? Have you you watched the th- uh, season of The Witch, right? Uh, Halloween three. No. Okay. I've okay. Wa- I love Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness okay. is one of my favorite John Carpenter movies. If you like Prince of Darkness, you'll probably like Halloween three. Nigel Neal. If you have if you're if you're not familiar with Nigel Neal, you're going to want to watch Quatermass and the Pit. I think I've seen that. You might have. There was a time where you and I had played a role-playing game together, and you're like, you know what we really want is supernatural science fiction. And Prince of Darkness and Quatermass in the Pit were my two influences for writing our um, Kids on Bikes campaign. Never told you that one before. but No, you didn't. Um, I I don't think there's as much of a connection between those. What you're looking at is a single single setting, right? You're looking at a lab. You can see that um, it is a comes with a human element and science being mixed together but there's the supernatural in science is such a big part of prince of darkness uh i would say that i find that a little less of a tenuous connection but certainly worth watching and uh yeah if just for alice cooper alone all right we always end with a pop quiz uh four multiple choice questions based on the movie are you ready i am and i won't interrupt you this time oh uh, you might want to eventually we'll see all right uh number one many people opposed using jeff goldblum in this picture trying to go with a more bankable and less peculiar star in the lead role in an alternate universe the role could have gone to any of the following actors except one mm. which was not considered for seth brundle a michael keaton b mel gibson C, James Woods, D, Richard Dreyfus, E, Willem Dafoe, F, John Travolta, or G, Harrison Ford. Wow. <laughs> um, all right. I'm going to go with Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford is the only one on that list that was not considered or offered. Several of them turned it down like they were offered. I can see Harrison Ford going, this is what now? I'm <laughs> What what is but a, this? But a world where Mel Gibson is in this movie is uh, I can weird. See mm, um, you know, Max. I can see. I think you take. I take Max and that kind of when when we get the original Mad Max when we see that t- turn at the end after the family is killed. I can see that level of acting. Plus, the guy is unhinged and uh, or can be unhinged. Uh, certainly later on in life. So I think he could have been okay with it. Um, I could see I Willem Dafoe doing it. Yeah, of course you could see Willem. You could see James Woods doing it too. Um, but you haven't seen <laughs> Videodrome yet. But James Woods, there's a reason James Woods was selected for 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 that potential of that. And I don't think it would have worked because it's his Max Ren character from Videodrome is it's I think t- would be too close. I think people would would find that a little disconcerting. All right, number two, the movie is based on a short story, but also contains a surprising amount of literary references within, which is not a work referenced within the film. A. Kafka's The Metamorphosis, B. Shelley's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, C. Alexander Pope's An Essay on Criticism, or D. Zhang Zui's Butterfly Dream. Interestingly enough, I'm going to go with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It never directly references Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Several of Goldblum's tirades are inspired very clearly by the other three works, but... Mm-hmm. Even though there are definitely Frankenstein overtones to this scientist and coming to terms with his creation, which in this case happens to be himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it's one of those you can draw those connections to the mad scientist doing things, but there's such a beauty and a poetry to Shelley's work. But Victor Frankenstein's a very different character. His motivations are very yes. different and, and the outcomes are very different too. Yeah. But 
oh boy, there's some really there's some interesting. If you if you took <laughs> it in that direction, there's some neat stuff that I would want to do. In yeah. fact, I think that's where you go for a modern take on it. Is because Kafka's yeah, Kafka's really it's it's very obvious, right? With Gregor Sampson and all that whatnot. But um, hmm, interesting. Okay, I'll have to think upon that. All right, number three. Special effects artist Chris Wallace, who won an Academy Award for his work on this film, was given a choice between this movie and another one, with The Fly having a significantly tighter time frame. They chose to do it anyway to try and rise up to the challenge. What was the other film they could have taken on? And you actually already addressed this one, so... Uh, I want to hear your other answers. Oh, okay. They're always so clever, yeah. A, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, B, Aliens, C, Little Shop of Horrors, or D, Big Trouble in Little China. Mm, lovely. Well, I mean, it's Gremlins, but um, yeah, I don't think Wallace's crew is up to the challenge of those other... other um, <laughs> all the other ones are almost comical in their makeups, right? This is very... This is their subtlety. There's a science behind all of this yes. stuff. Like, when I think of uh, Big Trouble, it's very big... Little Shop of Horrors, very big, very bold, very colorful. Same with the new batch. It's it, it's tonally, aesthetically very different. Right. Yeah, well, they're Looney Tunes compared to this. They're Looney Tunes <laughs> compared to this, yes. All right, uh, last one. Speaking of Chris Wallace, when talking about the movie, he revealed that every project has one effect that's a real pain to pull off. What was that effect, according to Wallace, for this movie? A, uh... making Brundle walk on the ceiling. B, the final Brundlefly transformation, C, melting Stannis's hand, or D, making Gina Davis a realistic love interest. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I was waiting for it. That's why I was letting you finish. I- I'm going to go with the hand. Um, it was. Melting Stannis's hand was the, the tough one, and he's not happy with how it turned out. Yeah, the hand, the leg, they both use the same technique as we get from uh what's his face's face in Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah Toth yeah which is uh, we also you know there's a similar effect in a Doctor Who story called uh, Dragonfire f- from the mid 80s uh very cool skull melty kind of facey thing yeah that's neat yeah cool. good good I'm All sorry right. you don't like Gina Davis I, I don't know what to tell you man yeah, I, it's, I, it's it's a person as I and I, I own that like I I'm, I'm not sitting here going yeah. oh they should have cast somebody else because I don't like her they just they, I don't like her it's just that's just me you know they could have gone they could have gone the route with uh one of uh his other films and we could have gotten um Cindy Lauper as the love interest all of vibes if you have you watched vibes I could actually see that <laughs> Or she, she could have been the one he picks up in the bar. Yes, that would have made more they sense. They could sing a song midway through the movie. Uh, and this is well, a Go- he already, Goonies he reference. He but... jumps on the piano as soon as they get to his uh, uh, lab. <laughs> Might as well throw her singing in oh, with him. And the beautiful thing, too, you see that scene with him playing the piano. He clearly knows how to play the piano. But then when he types in the first telepod, it's this fingering tap, 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 tap. After they've had sex, the second time he sends things through, there's a more flow of a piano player. Like the poetry's there; it's in him. The music is in him, uh, but she releases it. It's kind of a neat That's thing too. It's a little little side look, yeah. That's really interesting. Goldblum's, a, and I've never heard anyone reference that, so I don't know if it's just me projecting that out there. But I feel like his choices. We I didn't really talk about his performance. But his ticks and his speed and the manic aspect of it is really, it's a good, good performance all around. I'm actually surprised he doesn't get more credit for this role as an actor as the makeup does. Yeah. Maybe it's Gina Davis's fault. 
<laughs> All right, man. Where can people find you and what do you want to promote? Before I promote anything else, I want to recuse myself. Last time I was on the, the podcast for your um, Beyond the Screen, we were talking about kids on bike stories. We were. And um, someone suggested uh, as a possible kids on bikes movie, this movie called Watcher from 2012. I thought they meant 2017's Okja. And so I kind of threw it off as uh, kids meet supernatural being. I clearly didn't know what I was talking about. I just wanted to go ahead on the on record and say that <laughs> I, was, uh, I have since watched the trailer for Waja. And I'm really looking forward to watching that to see if baby it could be considered as a kids on bikes film. I just want to get that out there because I didn't want to leave that one hanging. Um <laughs> Where can people find it? Well, Rafe, you and I, we like talking about movies. It's clearly we also like talking about role-playing games because I've done it a couple of times on this very podcast. But um, <laughs> if I've got to promote anything right now, I want to talk about this new podcast that you and I are doing together, which is called Never Say Die, where we look at movies of a particular genre. Uh, this season is going to be all kids on bikes movies. And then we talk about how we can recapture, re reimagine the spirit of those films in our role-playing games. And so, you know, we've just got a Zero Session episode out now, but by the time this comes out, there should be very soon, either before or after this episode, our very first proper episode on the Goonies. So I really want to promote that because I think if you like listening to us talk about movies, we're going to be doing that. If you also like role-playing games, we're also going to be doing that. So that's going to be really cool. Other than that, if you like Doctor Who, I do have a podcast called Who and Company, which I do with uh, another friend of mine. It's a monthly podcast. We bring on a guest, someone who likes Doctor Who and who we like, and we talk about Doctor Who and another television show that is not Doctor Who. So that's that's what I do. That's my thing, man. All right, man. Well, well, thank you for your uh, uh, confession there about the movies. <laughs> I'm sure there were people who were just, you know, angry. I mean, it's the internet. Everybody's angry. But uh, uh, no, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you picking the fly. Uh, you gave me an excuse to finally watch it. So now you will stop harassing me about this. I'm sure you have like eight other movies to put on me now of like, how have you not seen this? And how have you not seen this? I love how you think it's only eight. <laughs> But I, I, yeah, I, I almost feel like this one suffers a little bit from the fact that I watched it 24 hours ago and yeah. like, it's almost one. And I learned early on in doing this podcast, like I, I can't let too much time separate between watching the movie and doing the podcast or I've forgotten about stuff and it's just not as good an episode. If you go back to some of my early episodes, there's a couple where that happened, where it was like a week or two in between mm -hmm. watching the movie and doing the recording. But this is one of those that I almost feel like I wish I'd had more time in between because maybe I'd have a better response to it. So. Well, it's fine. Listen, we can also re-record. I'm free next week if you want to, you know, give it. We can just do it again. <laughs> Two episodes. We'll just do a double episode. We'll just talk about the same stuff. It's just going to be me gushing. I'll probably try to do more Walken impersonations if I could. Um, we'll see. Oh, that might be worth it on its own. <laughs> So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about The Fly, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Townhess, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, -S, on Twitter and Letterboxd, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you enjoy Drew and I's movie conversation, I invite you to check out our new podcast, Never Say Die, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Drew Meyer for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.